Hi and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the first in a new series of podcast discussions. I'm Simon Mabon and today I'm joined by Andrea Tetti. Andrea is a professor at the University of Salerno. He's in the Department of Political and Communication Sciences. He's written extensively on the Middle East, on EU-Middle East relations, on democratization, Egyptian politics, continental political theory, and much, much more. He's the managing editor of the journal Middle East Critique, and I'm very excited to welcome him here today. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to uh, to dive deep into the the journey that you've been on across so many interesting things. But as we uh, as we always do, let's begin at the start, please. I mean, what was it that that got you interested in the Middle East, and what was it that that piqued your interest in in continental political theory? Uh, well, that's that's a, a long question. Um, essentially, by mistake. Uh, though there were a lot of things uh, when I started looking at Middle East politics at university, there were a lot of things in my background that helped me, uh, that resonated with me when I started um, uh, studying, researching uh, Middle East politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so in essence, I took, uh, I did my undergraduate and my PhD in St. Andrews. I took a variety of courses at university. Um, my degree is economics and IR, but I also took mathematics, geography, philosophy, logic and metaphysics and and for me it's always been very important to be intellectually curious and eclectic uh, and so on um and in international relations i took a little bit of everything i studied european politics with uh, uh, Travis salmon and ali watson which is um i suppose why i ended up uh, or my starting point ending up working on the european union i studied um international terrorism with bruce hoffman and i studied middle east politics uh, with Magnus Van Storp, and especially with Ray Hinnebush, who would later become my, my PhD supervisor. And essentially, when I had the choice of uh, honors courses and the third and fourth year courses, uh, I had the option of choosing uh, regional or area-based uh, courses on uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, Asia, or um, the Middle East. And I thought to myself, well, the easier thing would be to take a course in European politics because I kind of, I think I know something about this. And I think, by the way, thinking that you know something about this is very dangerous. And that's exactly why I ended up choosing uh, Middle East politics because the societies that I knew virtually nothing about, save for, you know, occasional uh, passing interest in things like the Palestine question as a teenager. Um, so I took those courses because I thought, okay, if I... If I study those courses, I'm going to ask myself basic questions that I might not ask myself if I uh, study countries that I think I know something about. Um, so it all started from there. Um, and I was particularly interested in uh, questions of imperialism, uh, political economy, uh, in ideology and political mobilization. And I think the question of Orientalism resonated with me quite a lot. Uh, especially with a kind of class inflection, because um, as you know, I'm originally from Naples. I was brought up, I was born and brought up in Naples. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, although I'm half English, so I went to an English-speaking uh, primary school, and in the English-speaking primary school, I was the Italian kid, and then I switched to Italian state school, and there I became, over the summer, I became the English kid, yeah. right? So that started to make me wonder about discursive construction of identity and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And also there, 
uh, to add the class dimension, I, I, I hadn't spoken Neapolitan before. So, because my father was from, uh, from another Italian region, and we spoke standard Italian at home along with English. So I went to middle school and suddenly I became the English kid and learned uh, French as a foreign language and Neapolitan. Okay, and there's all sorts of intersections of class and uh, imperialism in the sense of colonialism, in the sense of Italian internal colonialism, uh, and the way that identity would play in those contexts that I then recognized uh, very much when I was studying uh, Orientalism in the Middle East, the Euro Middle East uh, context. Fascinating. I, I guess there's a, as you say, a real deep sort of personal uh, journey reflecting on identity and the the contingent factors that are shaping, constructing, determining, rejecting identity. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the the intellectual smorgasbord of of St Andrews. There, I mean, you've had a, a veritable yeah. who's who of of scholars working on IR security, terrorism, and and the Middle East. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess mm. it's not all that surprising that you ended up going down the the trajectory that you went down. But the the continental stuff, which is one of the things that I found absolutely mm. fascinating in your work. I mean, where where does that come from? Because of the scholars that you've mentioned, yeah. none particularly jumps out as a as no. a strong continental theorist. Absolutely not. And this is one of the things. I mean, St Andrews today, international relations in St Andrews today is very different from what it was when I was an undergraduate. And yeah. Although there were very good uh, scholars and very good teachers there at the time, thinking about um, uh, Trevor Salmon himself, actually, um, and, uh, and and a few others, um, you know, Ali, Bruce. Well, I actually asked me later on a, a story about um, about asking questions to Bruce Hoffman in his office because it was quite interesting. <laughs> um, but there, there were there there was no one who worked on critical theory. There were a few PhD students. Uh, who worked on continental theory in one description or another. And this is where I got my input from. Uh, but no one who was doing research on that uh, in any way, nor was it being taught as a, a, a course form. And in fact, in my other uh, kind of specialization as an undergraduate, which is economics, um, I took courses with David Cobham in macroeconomics, who's also done some work on the Middle East, Shane Bonetti, experimental economics. And, 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 and none of that, has anything to do with continental theory. Yeah. Um, in fact, my, my journey to continental theory actually goes through the classics of orthodox IR and, and economics in the sense that I was interested in things like game theory, uh, rational choice theory, uh, experimental econ- economics was, be, was becoming a thing in the mid- mid-1990s. So kind of the operationalization, uh, the experimentalization of game theory. Um, and um, that's in fact what I did my dissertation on. Um, and uh, my undergraduate dissertation on. And, um, but what became clear to me uh, very quickly was that the world really doesn't work like rational choice theory expects it to, <laughs> to, to work. Right? Um, I'd always had this, you know, even learning classical, neoclassical macroeconomics uh, at undergraduate level, I thought I always had this kind of incredulity, a kind of nearly Leotardian incredulity about microeconomics. You know, if you think about the conditions of perfect competition, it's kind of like a smorgasbord of what doesn't happen in real life. Okay, yeah. um, and uh, and game theory as well. It's linkage to rational choice theory. Um, it, it it really struck me that um, game theoretic uh, models of different kinds of games that you that you can find fundamentally depend on payoff structures. In other words, 
on what happens if I choose this as opposed to that, right? But those uh, costs and benefits, if you will, those are not fixed. They evolve over time, whether they're material costs or whether they're ideological, ideational, political costs and so on. So my interest immediately became, okay, so what, what's the engine? What's, the, what's beneath the hood, as it were? What is it that shapes how those costs and benefits material and immaterial change over time, right? So that was how I was, and in fact, my PhD um, initially started out as a PhD that tried to combine uh, rational choice theory, game theory, and complexity theory. Remember, that was a thing in the 90s, early 2000s, yeah, right? It was. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but then, uh, you know, this question of how payoff structures change really led me down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 1990s was also the heyday of this kind of the emergence of constructivism. And I thought to myself, okay, here's a framework that allows you to look at the co constitution of agency and structure of the material and the ideational. I thought, fantastic, I can work with this. Um, and this is about a year into my PhD, so getting into shaky territory already, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more I read about constructivism and the less constructivists convinced me, so especially this kind of Ventian turn that is now hegemonic in IR theory mm-hmm. of, of constructivism, um, I, I really wasn't convinced by the way that it, that, that it effectively turned into a kind of complement of mainstream IR theory. Yeah. Jeffrey Chekel has this wonderful article in, I think it's International Organization, 1998, in which he says uh, that the good thing about constructivism is that it provides, quote, the identity variable um, for, uh, for mainstream IR and, quote, saves identity from postmodernism. Right. So there's a whole political agenda around it. And, and the reason I remember um, those quotes is because I then uh, uh, formalized that work with a former, PhD, uh, sorry, master student of mine, Nick Heinick, uh, who's now at Prague. Um, and we published an article in Contemporary Political Theory back in 2010 where we analyzed the way in which constructivism itself was normalized, mm-hmm. right? The way it was made to fit in with uh, orthodox agendas in IR, um, as opposed to what its actual. Con- potential might have been, right? Yeah. If you take, a, say, an owner's direction or Kratokville or something more radical itself, because ontologically, there's a very close proximity between constructivism and anti-foundationalist, mm-hmm. uh, so structuralism, as it were, right? Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of where I was going with this, and, and my interest, my decision to use constructivism in my PhD thesis effectively became uh, an, an incipient critique of constructivism itself, um, the moment I started reading Foucault, right? <laughs> because I, I approached, I started reading, I think it was Colin Gordon's collection on power knowledge and so on. Uh, but I, I read um, uh, one article in particular, one interview in particular, where at the end he famously defines regimes of truth and talks about the relationship between power and knowledge, how these two are inextricable, you know, and, and one leads to effects in the other's domain and vice versa and so on. Um, and at that point, however, I was probably, I'm thinking uh, towards the end of my second year of my PhD, I couldn't rewrite the whole thing. So I wrote the, the thesis as a kind of Foucauldian incipient critique uh, of constructivism, uh, but under the, 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 the apparent presentation of a constructivist uh, uh, theorization. In other words, I said, okay, let's take constructivism from first principles. Let's build a model of international or border between national and international politics through this and see what we end up with. Um, and, um, 
and of course my uh, my um, my internal sorry my external examiner who was David Campbell uh, immediately saw through that and his first question to me was are you a constructivist mm-hmm. uh, and of course I wasn't I had to admit quite quickly <laughs> that I wasn't and I was being critical of it so that's my in way into into sure. kind of continental theory. Um, it's really interesting hearing you you talk about that journey because I think my journey into it is very similar, although it happened a bit later on in my in my PhD process. Um, so there's there's a lot of parallels there, and interestingly, I I had a an initial supervisory meeting with a new PhD student of mine yesterday morning, and we had this same conversation about realism, constructivism, and the extent to which constructivism reproduces many of the the general positivist, or the constructivism of Vent in particular, reproduces yeah. many of the positivist foundational assumptions that Absolutely. someone like um, Nick Onuf or, or the post-structuralist turn, the, the continental philosophers would, would reject. And that's the... the you hmm. know, one of the serious divisions that, in IR, right? One of the fascinating things about that debate, by the way, is that very much like then the debate that I also analysed in terms of the bridging the gap in Middle East uh, area studies and political science, mm-hmm. it's a very one-sided debate. In fact, even more so, because if you look at that literature, there are very, very few um, post-structuralist theorists who engage with it in any way whatsoever. David Campbell does that in the conclusion to the revised edition of Writing Security, but that's pretty much it. So this is the this is one of the things, aside from the kind of natural trajectory towards this kind of positivist version of constructivist foundations, right? Um, but it's that kind of missing a debate that presents itself with a missing term, which is the counterpart, the critical counterpart in this case. Um, that was one of the things that fascinated me in terms of uh, the politics of knowledge production, which is, of course, another big strand in in my um, interest, in my, yeah. my research interest. Um, and it's just the construction of this debate that doesn't really have uh, an interlocutor except in such as is being constructed by the other party, as it were. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to get into that um, and the, the area studies I are... Uh, controversy mm. debate in a minute, but before we move on from this this part of the the discussion, you mentioned a conversation with Bruce Hoffman, and given that Bruce has been in the news mm. of late with his work on Hamas, um, which we can perhaps touch on as well in a bit, um, you mentioned an anecdote that it would be remiss of me to to avoid. So please. <laughs> okay, it's absolutely not scholarly, uh, but I was, um, uh, believe it or not, I was quite shy student. Uh, so I wanted to go and ask, um, I was taking Bruce's international terrorism course and I wanted to go and ask him a few questions I can't even remember of what. Um, and, um, and I kind of sucked up the courage to go into his uh, office, uh, super famous professor, etc. Uh, and I walk in and I sit down, I ask him the questions, and with the corner of my eye, uh, I notice these uh, objects that are um, sort of peppered, dotted um, around his office, uh, which look like bombs and weapons. And I thought to myself, I need to ask him a question about this and where these come from. Um, 
And so afterwards, after I, you know, he was very courteous and answered all my questions and so on. And I asked him, look, where do these things go? What is this stuff? And he basically told me that he'd been an advisor, consultant on one of the Die Hard films. I can't remember which one. Um, and that the artificer, the, the bomb expert from that film had, had given him these sets, these props from sets as the mementos of the, set, of the set itself and the thank you for his consultancy. But I tell you what, as a really shy undergraduate student, sitting in that office with these bombs and guns in the, in the corner of my eye yeah. was not exactly yeah. a comforting experience. No. But I mean, I mean, of course I knew they were fake. But, you know. And that's, that's a form of engagement that, that's that most, yeah. don't, uh, most aren't able to, to call upon, I guess. So... Uh... Yeah. Well, yes, that's another way of, you know, um, you know, impact of our work, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anyway, Andrea, let's um let's talk about this um this wonderful article that you had in EJIR um, from a few years ago now, bridging the gap IR Middle East studies and the disciplinary politics of the area studies controversy. Now, this is something that that most scholars of the Middle East, most area studies, IR applied scholars have read and are encouraged to read. But for people who haven't read it, just tell us a little bit about what's going on there. I mean, what prompted you to write this and to address this this ongoing tension between the the more sort of mainstream IR approaches and area studies? What What's the tension mm-hmm. first and, and what are you trying to do in the piece? Well, um, let, let me start kind of genealogically. So, or chronologically, I don't know. But at some point, um, just after 9-11, there was, of course, this entire debate around, amongst other things, area studies and the uses of area studies and why had we missed somehow uh, these attacks and et cetera. Um, and I was quite interested in that in that debate. I, I read around this. Um, and reading back in time, I soon noticed that um, very similar uh, terms of debate uh, appeared and reappeared um, roughly every 10 years or so. I mean, the timing's not important, but um, but they reappeared in pretty much the same form. And the form goes something like this. Area studies is uh, lacking compared to political science, economics, the disciplines in social science. Why? Because, because it is ideographic in the kind of uh, the, the talk of a previous generation, right? A terminology of a previous generation. It's ideographic as opposed to the non-aesthetic uh, commitments in political science and interrelations, economics, and so on. In other words, these fields, sociology as well, anthropology is a different kettle of fish, um, but these fields aim to reach these kind of law-like generalizations, these universal laws of human behavior and of human societies. Um, that's why they are non-aesthetic. They produce uh, uh, law. Whereas Area studies are ideographic. They're kind of like a collection of going out into the field, seeing what's what, um, and and using these what what were often referred to as tantalizing data. Of course, the language is dripping with Orientalism, right? But um, uh, tantalizing data that would be plugged into uh, disciplines theories in order to generalize them even further. And if there is some kind of bias in these uh, these law-like generalizations that disciplines have come up with, uh, that will be challenged by engaging with the data that area studies produces, right? Um, so that is 
on the one hand, the, the, the ethos, the structure of the debate, and the, uh, sorry, the structure of the debate on the, on the political science side, uh, the ethos that underpins disciplines in their positivist exception. In, of course, a framework, a mode, if you will, of knowledge production, which is social science as a whole, such as it emerges at roughly 100 years ago, right? 100, 120 years ago, as uh, what? As, in essence, uh, uh, Auguste Comte's project writ large. You know, Comte famously coins the term sociology as a physics of the social, right? Mm-hmm. A social physics. Um and, and disciplines have this kind of ethos. Social science as overall, overall has this kind of ethos. Um, so area studies and Middle East studies in particular were being accused of not living up to this standard. You know, the theorization is weak and all you do, all you do is collect one damn fact after the other in the field. The, the, you're methodologically unrigorous, uh, theoretically you're lacking, etc. right? Um, and vice versa, of course, from area studies, even conventional area studies, uh, long before uh, Edward Said's critique, the response was, you disciplinary uh, uh, scholars essentially know nothing about the field, and if you did, you'd realize that, uh, that the models, these ideas, these laws that you come up with are, uh, are incredibly overgeneralized, stretched far too thin, and essentially produce nonsense. So that's the, the terrain that was being marked out Again and again, in various iterations of um, uh, of the of the disciplines area studies debate, um, such uh, as as far back as I could trace it, you know, all the way back to the interwar period, essentially, right, um, the late interwar period, early post Second World War period, right, mm-hmm. and this fascinated me. It fascinated me because essentially what you're seeing is a gap that's being identified in one way or another by these two sides. Um, and it's never being bridged. Everyone says that it's a good idea to be more interdisciplinary, to be more rigorous, et cetera, et cetera. But they mean completely different things by it. Um, and essentially this interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary uh, scholarship that should transcend the current arm path, as it were, never comes about. So my question to myself was, why is that? Is it just because we don't have the right instruments in order to, um, to bridge this gap? Or, or is there something else that's going on sure. uh, uh, under, underneath it? And in that article, my first answer, and I, I'm now starting to think that this is kind of naive optimism, but, um, uh, but my first answer was what we need is a framework, an analytical framework, a theoretical framework that is capable of both embracing the generality and the specificity, right? And this, bear in mind, this was all happening in the late, years of my PhD. Um, So so I was thinking in terms of constructivism. Constructivism might be this framework, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, in light of what we've just said about Ventian constructivism, it can't be Ventian constructivism. Mm -hmm. It might be some form of constructivism, right? Now, and that's the proposal that I made in, in the article. I kind of concluded on this note that constructivism under certain circumstances might provide an intellectual bridge between these two pardon me, different kinds of commitments, pardon me. Um, the reason, I don't think that that's wrong in principle, but I think if we look at actually existing societies of knowledge production, such as our fields are, um, I'm less and less convinced that what drives the production of knowledge in these contexts 
is amenable to that kind of solution. What do I mean by this? Um, think about the debate, uh, the Aristotle's controversy, um, such as uh, it later became known, right? Yeah. Um, that controversy or solutions to that controversy come in two varieties, right? One is disciplines telling area studies, look, what you should really do is generalize your tools, your methods, they should be more rigorous, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you should universalize the particular area studies, right? Uh, but of course, what that means in terms of the sociology of our fields, uh, in terms of the epistemology of knowledge production, would mean undermining the reason that for existence of those fields uh, at all, right? Yeah. If a field is ideographic, then a nomothetic solution means the, dis the disappearance of that field. The other, the, the critique leveled against that solution uh, by people like Timothy Mitchell was, well, no, actually, or, um, you know, we should, what we should do is we should provincialize discipline, right? These universal uh, uh, constructs actually uh, hide a kind of embedded Eurocentrism, Orientalism, etc. quite right. Um, but the solution to that is to then provincialize uh, uh, discipline. Of course, that can't work either for exactly the converse, the specular reasons to beforehand, the ethos that underpins political science, economics, uh, to some extent sociology, uh, at least, in the way that they're designed and conceived in, in social science uh, generally, that ethos is diametrically opposed to the solution of provincialization that's being proposed. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so neither of those two solutions work. Right? Um, and I think at that point, we need to start reflecting on, on one hand, uh, what drives the reproduction of these fields. That's, remember, that's my original interest uh, yeah. for, for, that I started with. Um, and on the other hand, it, it, it means abandoning a little bit uh, the focus on the epistemic structures uh, that underpin social science, disciplines, area studies, etc. Um, because a lot of this discussion is, 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 is a discussion and analysis of the political consequences of those epistemic structures. So it's very, very specific, right? We're talking at a, at a theoretical yeah. uh, or meta-theoretical level. Whereas, as we know, as all of us know, whether we're working in orthodox context or in the post-structuralist heterodox context, actually existing knowledge production is much more hybrid, is much more uh, uh, cross-feeding, uh, sort of cross uh, cross-breeding, etc. Um, so if you look at the production in, generally speaking, area studies of the last 20, 25 years, certainly you can't accuse it of being that kind of old-style, pre-Orientalist uh, um, uh, mode of knowledge production at all. In fact, it is very rigorous methodologically, especially uh, in terms of qualitative methods. It is very eclectic in terms of the, the, the analytical tools that it draws on. It's really interesting, fascinating work that doesn't fit in that, uh, uh, that framework of, um, the, in some ways, of social science that I set out in the EGIR article, mm -hmm. which is the principles of social science. So I think then we need to shift, and this is coming to my, my work in progress, shift attention to, uh, to what is actually going on and, and, and the original problem, which was how is it that these two domains and these two ways of producing knowledge uh, on, in our case, the Middle East, remain so separate? How is that separation produced and how is it reproduced over time, um, and like I said, that's work in knowledge in progress. So um, uh, hopefully soon to be 
soon to be published. But what I will say is that I'll kind of draw attention to a piece, that, a small piece that um, a colleague of mine and I, Pamela Abbott, and I published earlier on this year in February back in um, uh, on PS, Political Science and Politics. And that is, if we look at actually existing scholarship on the Middle East, it is, like I said before, eclectic, interesting, methodologically rigorous, et cetera, et cetera. So one might say, um, well, what's the problem? You know, there, there is no, this, this problem of social science disciplines versus area studies is passe. It's, it's not the world that we, we live in. Um, and I wish it were true, because if you look at patterns of publication, um, Middle East-related scholarship in uh, disciplinary journals, political science and, and IR journals, it's actually quite staggering how marginalized Middle East studies is generally in those journals, and in particular, uh, critical approaches, whether you're talking critical in terms of theoretical framework or whether you're talking critical in terms of qualitative methods, um, they, are, they constitute, those kinds of publications constitute a vanishingly small trace of, of the total amount published in the top 13 IR journals, political science and IR journals, over the last 20 years. Um, and that's quite a sobering thought. Yeah, uh, and it does indicate that some kind of process of marginalization is still at play. So I'm interested in trying to figure out what mm-hmm. it is that drives that. I think that's such a really, uh, such an important piece for people to look at. As you say, it's, it's sobering. But if I can spin this dialogue in a slightly positive direction, I think the work that you're doing generally as you as a scholar is is helping to shift the contours of of the broader debate um, situated at the borderlands, if you will, the intellectual borderlands of area studies and and IR slash political theory slash continental theory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also your work as um, as editor with Middle East Critique, and Middle East Critique is producing some incredible work and is responsible for some of the. I think some of the best critical scholarship on the region out there today. So I think that's hugely important, the service that you're doing as a scholar, but also the service that you're, you're doing, the role that you're playing as an editor of a critical journal. Thanks. I mean, I, I should say, I echo your note of optimism in the sense that uh, having said all of this, these are the challenges we face. And I'll come to the journal in a second, but I just wanted to say uh, the 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 joyous, the the liberatory kind of uh, uh, note in all the, the mapping that I mentioned beforehand is the fact that this critically engaged uh, eclectic scholarship exists. You know, there are fantastic examples of this stuff. If you think about Lali Khalili, or if you think about Julian Schwedler, if you think about Lisa Hajar, you know, there are fantastic scholars who do this kind of work. Um, personally. I think that the, in some ways, the debate over positivism, post-positivism is in some specific ways overblown uh, in, in this sense. I think that most of the debate that we have, first of all, there's a division between qualitative methods that you know, critical scholars usually use and quantitative methods that, uh, that orthodox positive scholars use that has very little reason to exist. There's absolutely no reason why we as critical scholars shouldn't be able to use quantitative methods, of course, in a critical vein, um, and there's absolutely no reason why positive scholars should not be able to use qualitative uh, methods, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the 
the problem is not so much on the methods that they use, but on the epistemic status of the results of that analysis. In the sense that if I think that the results of my analysis constitute some kind of uh, small piece of a, of a broader universal law-like puzzle, then you know I fall in that kind of positivist camp. And if I think that that what I've reached is a, is a kind of mapping engagement, uh, uh, an analysis, an analytic of a particular context, how it works, how it evolves in this particular con- in specific instance, in other words, contingent, then, you know, obviously I fall more in a kind of anti-foundational kind of camp. But in principle, there's nothing that should be stopping us from using each other's methods, as it were. And so some of the work that I've done, for example, with survey data over the last six or seven years um, has been exactly in that kind of vein. Um, I've been taking uh, maybe too subtle approach to survey data, uh, which is actually deeply informed by kind of Foucauldian um, analytics, but there we go. In terms of the journal, um, uh, I became managing editor of, of the journal um, uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I'm really proud uh, of the work that we're doing at the journal. Not, Of course, not just me, but Matteo Gavasto as the new editor, Eric Hoagland as the founding editor, um, and all the expanding team of associate editors that, that we have now. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, first of all, broaden the voices that can be heard in uh, critical approaches to uh, politics, cultural studies, historiography, etc. Um, and by uh, marginalized or subaltern voices, I mean both in terms of national academias, languages of academia, etc., and of course, uh, uh, approaches, different approaches that are not normally um, regarded as uh, as, um, as mainstream, prestigious, authoritative, etc. But we're also trying to do something else. I think um, for those of us who have been in the field for uh, you know fifteen, twenty years, we've there has been a necessary phase of taking critical theory and applying its principles, developing its principles in non-Western context. Yeah. There's been a, a subsequent uh, a phase of criti- criticizing, critiquing those frameworks themselves uh, for their Eurocentrism, for Orientalism, embedded Orientalism, methodological nationalism in certain cases, or mm-hmm. methodological regionalism in others. Um, but I think now the, those kinds of two phases of scholarship um, are fairly mature. There's still a lot of work to do, but they're fairly mature. Um, what excites us is the possibility um, of speaking back to theory. Okay, yeah. so if I'm working with Lazzarato on debt, um, you know, it, it's the, there's obviously a place for for papers that take a, a Middle East quote unquote case and apply this analytic to that case. But I think it's much more interesting and ambitious and ultimately in the long term productive to think back through um, the, the nuts and bolts that we work with, uh, through the methods that we use, through the, the evidence that we engage with, um, and along with any of other factors. But through all of that, through everything that's in, involved in the process of knowledge production, to speak back to those theories, uh, not just to critique their uh, the Orientalism and the Eurocentrism. Sometimes it's absolutely justified. Other times, you know, we're overegging the pudding, as it were. Um, but um, but but to move move that uh, work forward at an analytic and a theoretical level, not just um, in terms of an applicative or contestatory uh, uh, level. 
So those are the kinds of remits that we have that we've given ourselves um, through the internal discussion in in the, the board. Um, we want to uh, focus on subalternity, cross national, cross national, eventually cross national similarities between world regions. You know, overcoming this kind of methodological regionalism I mentioned a moment ago. Um, looking at different forms of power, talking about the politics of, of failure earlier on. Um, and one of the big, um, I think one of the big uh, sort of blind spots of both the kind of political economy in a Marxist or Marxian vein and the kind of semiotic analysis in a post-structuralist vein has been the relationship between the two. And in a way, we're going back to those discussions that we had a moment ago about, about constructivism. Um, political economy does political economy very well, but the semiotic dimension, the discursive uh, uh, dimension is not very well integrated. There's really interesting stuff being done by John, Bob Jessup's uh, group at Lancaster, incidentally, um, etc. But by and large, that's, that's a neglected dimension of, of political economy. And specularly in, let's say, post-structuralist or discourse-sensitive discourse approaches, the sense, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on text, uh, text analysis in you know whatever uh, sense. Um, often it's not particularly, I don't want to say rigorous, but it's it's not particularly transparent. Um, and then there should be more of that. Um, but but in a way, um, in pursuing the analysis of the relationship between knowledge and power, we're kind of in that Foucauldian uh, vein we're kind of missing out on a point that was very clear to Foucault himself. Um, and that is that the materiality uh, that is connected to all of these dynamics. There's a materiality in all the institutional analyses that Foucault carries out. And in fact, if you recall, I mean, most people probably are familiar with the, the famous definition of uh, regimes of truth that Foucault gives in an interview. And the, the interesting thing is that if we read uh, uh, it's both in the Rabineau and the Colin Gordon collections, which are the two most famous uh, collections of essays uh, of Foucault's. Um, but basically, the page before he starts talking about truth and the status of truth and regimes of truth and relationship between truth and power, etc., he talks about, he says, look, in every society, there is a political economy of knowledge production. And it works in, he says, our societies, meaning France, Germany, and so on. It works in certain ways. It takes on certain forms. For example, science. It takes on. It, it works through certain institutions like uh, the police or security sector, universities, government, politics, etc. Right. So, he, it was very clear, I think, to him that there is this materiality that is a political economy of knowledge production uh, alongside the, the, the semiotic uh, dimension that he is most famous for analysing. And so, I think one of the things that we want to do at Critique is try to bring those two things into conversation with each other, those two commitments in conversation with each other, um, and see where that takes us. Fantastic. Well, I think you're doing wonderful work, and it's a commendable, aspirational task. Um, but if if any journal is well-placed to do it, I think it is Middle East Critique. So um, keep up the good work, I guess, both as... as as a journal and the wonderful stuff that, that you are doing as a scholar in and of your own right. But Andre, we've been talking for a long time and it's been wonderful and yes. so much more that we could go into. 
Um, mm. We've barely scratched the surface. So I think what we might have to do is is schedule a a round two of this and, and go deep into your democratization, authoritarianism, EU MENA stuff, um, which is something that yeah, I'd be pleasure. very excited to do. So thank you so much for today, Andrea. It's been an absolute pleasure. Simon, thanks for having me. And uh, I look forward to listening to your next episodes of the podcast. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Andrea for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter or X, I guess, at A underscore Teti. That's at A underscore Teti. Do check out his wonderful work. Do look into Middle East Critique as well if you're not familiar with the stuff that they're doing. And as always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time.